0: Good morning again. um, Yeah, you might notice my voice is a little off. I was sick all week. Um, I did test with a home test and it was not COVID. So if you trust the home test, then we're in the clear. Also, it's been like 10 days. So the CDC even called me and just said, just go, you're good. (laughs) You've you've exceeded all of our expectations. Um, We are in our Ephesians series and uh, we're in chapter 2, we'll look at verses 11 to 22 this morning. And just to kind of a reminder, you know, Ephesians is this glorious letter by Paul. We don't ever want to rank letters, but many, many famous theologians throughout time have said this is one of their favorite letters. You really hear the heartbeat of Paul and the beauty of the gospel in this letter. And we be, it begins with that famous, and we're going to actually use it as our confession this morning, eulogy that just looks at you wherever you are and says, God loved you before you were you, before you were anything, before there was anything. And he brought you into his family and into his household and he placed his Holy Spirit in you. And this is true of you. And last week I really tried to hit the point. we Stop asking yourself, like, is it true? Do I feel it? Just sit and let the waves roll over you that Jesus has rescued you, you are his, you are the beloved. And then he prays this prayer at the end of chapter one, Paul does, that you and I who have these promises would know the power, and that is the power of the resurrection, the power of Jesus, that that would transform us. And then last week we saw he then begins to tell us what he wants that to do, the knowledge of that power is to help us understand that we are not saved by anything we've done, but by grace alone. And that has become such a common theme that many of us have neglected to realize we don't believe it, like we don't realize that we walk around thinking we've done something special. And so the hope last week was that we would recognize that indeed we were dead in our trespasses, and yet even in that state, God, but God rescued us. And that if last week was talking about how you particularly or individually came to Christ, this message this week is a continuation of that, but it's a little bit trickier in some of its theology. But what he's now doing is transferring to the idea of you belong to a new body, a new humanity. And that's really where we get this name of the series, The New Humanity, is that Paul, in this letter, is painting this glorious picture of what it means to be part of the bride of Christ. Something that for Americans in a modern era is incredibly difficult to grasp, and I have found it hard for myself to even know that I want that. And I think we all wrestle with that. What does it mean to be part of a community? So we'll look at that this morning. Um, Read with me verses 11 to 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, I pray that the beauty of what Paul is teaching and what this text tells us would come through by the power of your spirit I pray Lord wherever my words are muddled or confusing that your spirit would shine through with truth or that nothing would get in the way of the pure truth that we whom are your people are one people and that there is nothing for us to boast in that we only boast in you Jesus Amen. Um, There is so much happening here, and one of the challenges when you come to reading the Bible and studying it, especially, and I mentioned earlier, as an American. What do I mean by that? As someone whose very country started with individuals going forth, being individual, uh, we read most of these passages by ourselves and and for ourselves. I remember uh, one of our professors, Dr. Collins, in one of our Old Testament classes He mentioned mistakes we make when reading the Bible, and one of them is he drew a bunch of Xs, and he said a lot of us read the Bible like individuals, and there's a series of Xs representing individuals. So when you go to the Old Testament or you read the story of David or even the New Testament, we just think of it. What about me? How does this apply to myself? What would I do here? And then he drew a big circle, and he said the other mistake are there are people and there are other countries that might read the Bible and only see it as a like the community. And so when Emma and I were in Japan, as one example, we heard in the English, there's a Japanese uh, axiom, the nail that sticks up gets hammered down. So that culture is quite different than America. Here we're saying, you better stick up or you're going to fail. Be unique. In that culture, it's do not stand out, all for one. And so he, he then drew a third drawing and he drew a circle representing the community and all the X's in that, saying it's both and. It's a mystery. It's... We're both individuals and a community, one at the same time. And if you look at chapter 2, I would say the first 10 verses are speaking to us in a community, but as our individual stories. And then chapter or verses 11 to 22, therefore, as a community, what this means. And what we're going to find is you need community to flourish, not only in this life, but in the life to come. Dietrich Bonhoeffer Uh, a famous uh, Lutheran theologian who was uh, in a a camp during the Holocaust for um, a plot to take out Hitler. He says this uh, in one of his writings in his book, Life Together. Let him who cannot be alone beware of community. Let him who is not in community beware of being alone. Which are you? I think a lot of us gravitate I have to be with people. Okay, you've got to learn to be alone. Or I've got to be alone, okay, but then maybe you're not great in community. It's a both and. And so the church is the place where we come together in our community, not losing ourselves, not losing our identity, but growing because we need each other. And that's what we're going to look at in this passage. And um, it's hard. It's hard because I tend to want to come to sermons and hear what I can do differently in my study time, in my quiet time, and then go forth and make my life better. Well, that's hard in community because what you end up seeing is how much growth and how much brokenness and how much change we need. So the three things we're going to look at is the problem in this passage and with our community, uh, the solution, and then just the process. The problem in this passage And it really just all week was, uh, I had a fog in my brain, so it it might have been that. But it was the one line that just kept reverberating. I was telling somebody earlier, I I was studying all week, but I don't know. I was trying. So if this is not making sense, um, go listen to like Tim Keller or somebody on it. Um, The dividing wall of hostility just kept reverberating. Like, what does that mean? Paul says there is a dividing wall of hostility. And the case study of this condition that we all find ourselves in with other people is Jews and Gentiles. Now, uh, if you know the Bible, you know that God is going to save the world, did save the world, but going back in time, through a people, the Jews. And he calls Abraham, Father Abraham. And And from Abraham, we have the lineage of of the Jewish race and the Jewish nation, which leads to Jesus. And when Jesus comes, he opens up the gospel to Gentiles. We're included. But also, if you know the Bible, that's not how Jews ever felt. Like Jewish, uh, the the history of the Jews is like, uh, we don't want those people to come in. We're going to keep people out. And the history of Gentiles is we don't like Jews. By the way, a Gentile is anybody that's not Jewish. Um, and so there was this hostility. Um, remember that the Jews had this love-hate with nations around them. They wanted to enfold. They wanted kings like their kings. But then they also, when they followed their laws and they had the blessings they were given, felt superior and actually were, in many ways, superior in a sense. And that is that they that they had right living. Later, Paul will say, "Those who are near versus those who are far." but the bottom line is they missed the whole point because when you read Moses and you read Deuteronomy the whole point of the Jewish nation was to be a light to the world. I'll, I'll never forget. I remember in seminary going through covenant theology, Dr. Williams explaining how Israel if you look at where it was located, how God in his ma- sovereign majesty like creates this perfect pathway from Asia and Europe, I guess Asia and Europe through this little strand to get to Africa, and how if they had been the the the, the people they were supposed to be, missions would have happened, and, and so much change could have happened. But they became a closed off people. So you get into Isaiah and Jeremiah and other prophets who are saying this. There's this dividing wall. By the time you get to the New Testament, and we know the temple has a court for the Gentiles. And do you remember what was happening there? The selling of all the sacrificial animals for the included people. In other words, that place was taken over so there was no space for Gentiles. And then what did Jesus do? Did he applaud that? Did he quietly, kindly ask them to please pack their wares up? No, he cracks the whip. God hates that division of hostility. But it's a universal problem, Right? It's a universal problem that whatever you have that makes you unique, whatever you have that makes you different and even special, you and I are tempted in our flesh to begin to wear that as a badge. This is the way to be. And you obviously are less than I am because you don't have it. We tend to hold that, we tend to name people. Um, Naming is such an interesting concept too, like labeling, it's very easy. To put people in buckets through labeling. Were you labeled in your life? You're the funny one. You're the smart one. You're the pretty one. You're the, you're the peacemaker. Whatever your label was. Isn't it interesting in verse 11 how Paul says this? He could have easily said it differently. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, he could have easily continued into verse 12. Were at a time separated from Christ. What does he say? You were, at one time, Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision. Now, I don't remember in the Bible where God tells the Jews to go around calling themselves the circumcision. And I certainly don't find a verse where it says, and tell all the Gentiles, you guys are the uncircumcision. What an uncomfortable word, by the way, when you think about what it even means. I think everyone in the room knows what circumcision is. Isn't it interesting that if you think about how hidden that body part should be, why would I go around telling people who I am on the basis of something that you can't even know? It's like we, we look for anything to separate ourselves. And, of course, for the Jews, that was like their number one thing. We are set apart. We are special. And you are not. Why do we do that? Because our identity comes by being exclusive. In the New Testament, in in Luke 18, there's a Pharisee who goes to the temple to pray. It's a parable. But what does Jesus say? The first words out of his mouth are. There's another person in the same space praying who's a tax collector, a sinner. And the Pharisee begins by just saying, oh, Lord, thank you that I am not like other men. Thank you. Thank you that I'm special. Um, I heard uh, an example of this from, it's a made-up story of a shipwreck, where they find the shipwrecked person years later, and he had survived. But one of the things he had done was he built a church, a little shack with twigs and things. And he explained to the people that found him, this is where I would worship and have my church service. And then they noticed there was another one. Like, maybe 30 yards away. What's that one? That's where the other people would go, the ones that I would hate. See, I needed to have the church I go to and I needed to have the church that I hated to be fully worshiping. It was a joke. Like, they didn't really, he didn't really do that. He just bought a tennis, he just found a uh, Wilson volleyball. What are the things that separate you? What are your strengths? What are the things that make you hate other people? The word hostile or hostility just means to hate. What is it that you hate? Like, where are you drawing the line? We all have it. It's fascinating how we are so aware of certain hatreds and lines of hatred. I, I've, I've never heard this phrase more than I've heard it in the last few years, but we are more polarized than ever. Have you all? Raise your hand if you've said that. Come on, I've said it. We've all said it. We're more. Do you all remember the Civil War? Like, we've had polarization before, but somehow in the moment, it just feels worse. But here's the funniest thing, and I'm going to put myself in this camp. When we say we are more polarized than ever, we immediately say, because there's those people. (laughs) It's like we're more polarized than ever. I'm in this group, and then there's these weirdos in that group. And I feel great because I'm in my group. I can't figure out why they don't see what I see. I'm better. We all do it. And you might say, well, that doesn't play into my faith. That doesn't play into my religion. But it does. Because they are less than you. Because somebody sees the world different than you. Those crazy liberals. Those cr- wacky conservative republic, you know. We have these phrases. Your, is it your academics? Is it your no, no, I'm street smart? Is it your race? I'm of a superior pedigree is it your wealth what we have so many things by which we measure ourselves and we don't say it all the time and we rarely put it into words but you can tell it's there when you feel hatred so my question is as we move into the rest of this discussion is what makes you hate what makes you uncomfortable what is it about someone else that makes you go I don't want to be near that person And I'm going to propose a solution as we, trans- as we transition. What, what it is, is this. You don't believe you're beloved. You and I don't truly believe we're loved by the triune God 100% because of his grace and mercy. At the same time, we hate another person or feel better than another person. It can't happen. Our hostility toward other people is because we really have a hostility with God. And that hostility with God, you see it perfectly in the prodigal son story, is the older brother didn't want to be with the father any more than the younger brother. Neither one wanted the one thing they needed to love, the father. They wanted status. They wanted inheritance. They wanted something to, to prove their worth. And the father's like, I'm with you the whole time. And so our hostility when it's driving us toward uh, against other people is really a hostility toward our heavenly father and so i want to use that as we as we move into our second point which is the solution that's the problem underlining this passage is this line of is this um dividing wall of hostility and in our passage uh, in our, and then the solution is jesus and his bringing peace it says there in verse 14 or verse 13 but now so making peace. What we have, the solution is this. It's, have you ever had an argument like in your family and like the two kids are, like you're a parent? Okay, let me back up. Here's something that's happened to me a few times. But you've got two arguing and as the parent it's like it's neither. Like you're both wrong. Have you ever heard that as a kid? And it just, you're like, no. Well, that's what Paul's saying. He's not like the Jews are right but I've got good news. You get to go be a Jew. He's saying both are wrong in, that, in their current expression. The Gentile's wrong, you're far away and you need peace. But Jews, you're close, you're near, but you're far because these ordinances are no longer what matter. What matters is Jesus and him crucified. And so the solution is that we are being crafted into a new person in, the, in that most beautifully pictured in in the idea of the bride of christ or the church when i say the word church let's do some deconstruction for a minute do you have a building that flashes through your brain when you hear the word church what flashes to your brain is it a building okay let's not do that anymore okay these are just places you build and meet in can be what you know is it this room with these people it's better at least it's humans but the church, I don't know that I can give you a perfect example of what it is, but what it should be is a, a community of people that make you uncomfortable, and yet you are more intricately connected to than any other people on the planet. Because what Paul is teaching is this, uh, once you are in Christ, that's your identity. The solution is you are your race, your, your uh, career, Your country of origin, your football team, whatever it is that you want to define yourself by, are still important and still good. They've been demoted. What makes you truly you is that you're now a Christian. Um, I've never felt more foreign than when we went to Japan. I mean, we were the gaijin. We were the foreigners. You would hear someone mention foreigner, and you'd look and think, oh, all those people, right? Oh, it's me. That's how... American I am. I think everyone else is the foreigner. It took a long time to realize, like, we are so unique. And so if we ever saw Americans or could go to Tokyo, like, to the Hard Rock Cafe, that felt really exciting. But I will tell you, to talk to a Christian that was Japanese, I'd, you felt far more connected to them than if you were talking to someone who just said, I'm from Oklahoma and I like OU football. Like, that would be cool for about 12 minutes. But the Christian who's speaking, we're, we're struggling to communicate, but they love Jesus. And in Japan, you're not a Christian unless you are a Christian. Like, it's not, it is so frowned upon. So when you find a believer who loves the scripture, loves the church, loves Jesus, and you're communicating, you felt so knitted together. And, and longing for, for fellowship unlike any other relationship there is. And that's the way the church is to be. We are to to come together. We see that in the last three verses. Look at verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens, fellow citizens. So the first metaphor Paul uses to describe this new humanity is we're all citizens of a country. That's pretty good. That's a close proximity. He goes even more intimate. Members of the household of God. Now, he's saying, not only are you the same country and citizens of one country, but you're of one family. But the third metaphor is a building, a holy temple. You're now, you're physically part of a structure in which the Holy Spirit dwells. You're touching the other pieces. Like, we are absolutely transformed. That's the truth. Now, remember, I'm not saying, do you feel this way? Do you currently think these thoughts that's not the point the point is paul's telling you what is true in chapter four we'll go to what to do this is just all i will give you some application but um, do you at least buy into this truth that the gospel destroys your comparison apparatus the things you use to differentiate yourself from others It, it destroys it your pecking order is gone right What if you began to actually think about people in this way? What if you began to move toward people? Um, What would it look like to do this? In Hebrews 3, 13, the writer of Hebrews says, exhort one another. Are you close enough to the people in this church or whatever church you belong to, to be exhorted? Does someone know you well enough To know the sins you struggle with, because you've shared that, or to have observed you struggling in sin patterns, and do they feel the freedom, and is there a mechanism by which they move closer to you in your life and talk to you carefully with exhortation? And do you do the same for others? Because that's the intimacy Paul is picturing here. We're not talking about, are you coming on Sunday morning, though that's important. Are you part of a small group? Very important. Do you go to the Bible studies? But it's those things and who, where, are you, who's your community? See, we live in a world right now that we design our, we have our communities. It's, it's, we just design it. We go online and we just show who we act like we are. Last night we had the uh, Casa Gala. And um, yeah, I know, I was sick all week, but I went. It was a party, so you have to go to those. And uh, I wore my mask for like eight, eight seconds because I didn't want to wear my mask. Well, not this mask, should have worn that one all night. But the one, you know, the ma- it was a masquerade ball. So you buy the mask and you kind of like put it on. But I noticed we were all shedding those masks because they were so uncomfortable because I wanted to come up with my real masks. You know, the, the, we all carry around a much more smooth masquerade uh, you know, how are you at a party? You know, the, what jokes do you tell? How do you get to know people? That kind of stuff. And I think it's a funny concept, masquerade, because we walk around this world in this church with our masks. And our social media is just another picture of that. I would challenge each of you to go to social media today or tomorrow and make a post of your worst feeling that day. Post that. Woke up today feeling like I was completely unlovable. And this person told me that, you know, I would love to do that for like a week. I challenge you guys. Uh, It might change the world. But can we at least do it inside the church? Can we at least come together and be real with our vulnerabilities? Um, How many of you have seen Encanto? I'm not going to give it away because my whole family hasn't seen it. So I'm going to talk about Encanto for two seconds, and I'm not going to give it away. But Encanto, and I'm also going to mess it up because I mess up every illustration. Um, a Disney movie, cartoon movie, uh, C- CGI movie, but uh, about a woman who is escaping, like, these people that have taken her out of her homeland. She and her husband and three triplets are escaping, and he has to turn back to protect the group, and he dies and she gets a superpower, and she's alone. And she and that superpower and the three kids go and form this city, which I think that's what the word Encanto means. What does it mean? Huh? Yeah, that's what I said. It means magic. (laughs) So the magic is there because the, here's what the magic does. The magic labels each child with a power. It it, it says, this is your single power. And they each have a superpower that were super crazy. They weren't what you would think. And it's perfect, but all the while, the house, whatever that is in that language, is cracking. And this lady, the grandmother, will not accept that reality. So um, I won't give you the end of the story, but I will say one example is one of the child's, at this point, the grandchild's power is she's beautiful and so beauty and she makes flowers and I guess makes everyone feel happy. But she's also like rotten, like you don't like this character. And her transformation in the movie, I'm trying not to tell because Meredith hasn't seen it yet, is, so just cover your ears if you want to for this part, is she finally gets honest and, and has an imperfection. And then begins to say, I didn't want to marry this, and begins to get honest and truthful, and then she and the hero become closer, and it sort of starts the change in the movie. So I hope I didn't just ruin it for you. Here's the point. Every good Disney movie is based on a horribly dysfunctional, like I think this lady was a, de- dealing with borderline personality is my theory, and her deal is I'm going to contain my, my harm with uh, labeling every person and putting them in a box And then, of course, through saving, that changes. So did I just ruin the movie for everybody and ruin everything else? What's your label? Who's labeled you, but what is your label? Like, what's the thing or things that you're using to survive and get through this world? And are you willing to see them taken away? That's how growth happens, that vulnerability. We can finally come together And say, I'm not as confident as you think I am. I may act like I have money, but I want you to know I almost filed bankruptcy three weeks ago. I mean, what's your truth that you can just share with people and be honest with people? But more importantly, how do you move toward those people out of your weakness? So let's just kind of close out by the third point by talking about how this works in our passage. There's a dividing wall of hostility. That's our problem. The solution is having it removed. How do you do it? And the answer is Jesus became your hostility, right? In 2 Corinthians 5, it says he, God made him sin who knew no sin. Jesus knew no sin. But God, he didn't just say you're going to the cross and we'll kind of pretend. He made him sin, meaning the noun sin. He made him the content of your, of your own hostility became Jesus. And Jesus' righteousness came on you. And what that means in that great exchange is God now looks at you and doesn't see the foibles. Here's the problem with the talent thing. Here's the problem with the dividing wall of hostility, is you can only put forward the things you're kind of good at. But then someone else will come along and be better than you. Or also, you have areas that you're really bad at that you hide, and you're gonna die by that same law. And God is coming forth and saying, Listen, let's wipe it all away. You have the righteousness of Jesus. No, God would say to you, know that I love you and I've always loved you. And in Jesus you have peace. And now you can actually turn and love people around you because you don't have to prove yourself anymore. He bore your sin on the cross. I was reading a book this week because my wife read it and then asked me to read it by Henry Nouwen, And I love him. I'm like, I'm just going to do it. I have some time. I'm going to read this book. It's short, and I highly recommend it, The Life of the Beloved by Henry Nouwen. Henry Nowen was a Catholic priest who wrote quite a few amazing books. And this book is his attempt to write to a Jewish friend in language that isn't jargon, about what it means to be a person of faith. Because this Jewish friend is actually not religious at all, secular Jew, and yet became really close with Henry Nowen. And, and so he's, the entire book, he's just telling him, you're, like, to be a child of God is to be beloved. And I was, we were trying to talk to Bonnie about it, so I'm always reading my kids, front row, sorry. Every day at lunch, I hear how I shouldn't do that anymore. Um, and I'm, I was like, "What? how does this, Like what, how would I describe it? Because what Nowen is trying to say is you're beloved. Does that ring true to you? Do you feel that? And so finally I just said, we wake up every morning and I think this is your burning thing. Raise your hand if you're not in this camp. Here's what I think all of us want to know to go into our day every day. Do I matter? Do you matter? See, Henry Nowen at this point in his life, writing that book, lived at a home for people with disabilities who, to the world, did not matter. And he was so intimately connected with their longing to matter, and that's what the gospel says, is you matter infinitely more than you've ever understood. If you think your talent is why you matter, you're degrading yourself. If you think the few Lines of demarcation that set you apart are what make you special. You're ruining your heart. And it's grinding your soul. And it's grinding the souls of others. You matter because from the beginning of time, God loved you. And it wasn't an accident. It wasn't sort of this like, okay, Jesus, I guess since you rescued him, I'll take him in. He, the Father, sent Jesus to rescue his own. And you are that person. And if you're sitting here going, I don't know, I mean, let me just kind of check out my life story, make sure it lines up. Maybe I'll believe that, maybe I won't. It never will. You will never live a day, a week, a month, an hour that makes you feel like maybe it's true of you. It's only true of you because it is true of you if you want it. It's not an accident that you're in this room, it's not an accident that this letter has found its way into your heart. It's not an accident. Now, if you are sitting here and you're like, I know I'm not a believer, but I'd like to be, then it's true for you. Ask Jesus into your soul this very moment. But if you already have and you know that you believe in Jesus, though you wrestle, though you struggle, Paul is promising you the dividing wall of hostility between you and God has been removed. You are the beloved. You matter. And when that sinks into your soul, you will begin to move toward those people around you. Application, I know I've gone a little long. Here's the application. I really mean this. It's the simplest thing in the world. Where do you hate? It doesn't take you long. does it? I mean, you could go home and take a pen out and a piece of paper, and it's the easiest assignment in the world because we all do it anyway. When we talk to our friends or, you know, we tell people, how was your day? It was awful. I hated the, like, what do you hate? Just start exploring. Just kind of run that... Where are you hating people? Where are you hating ideas? Where are you hating whomever, the professor, the boss, the spouse, the kid? Write it down and just dive into, like, why? It's because somewhere I'm being exposed as possibly not mattering. And then you go to the cross with that. Jesus, forgive me for thinking these people should like me for these things, Thank you that the weight is off. Again, in Kanto, as soon as that pressure is off that that grandmother was putting on those people, this is a, the ending, so cover your ears if you're going to watch it later. Now, people have watched this movie like 15 times, so I don't think it matters if you know. As soon as that pressure is off, they became more fully who they were meant to be. Your gifts will actually become enhanced. Your weaknesses will be covered because other people are helping you. You'll be in true community, and you'll know that not only are you the beloved, but we're in a community that is beloved. So let's pray for that this morning. Amen. Father, I ask that you would help us confess that we don't think we matter. We really don't. And what a tragedy, Lord, because rather than looking at the cross to prove ourselves wrong, we look to our own efforts. And of course, then we're proven right. As I look to my own feelings, my own behaviors, my own timeline of life, whatever I look at, they're all short. Will you teach us, Jesus, to look at what you did on that cross? That you on that cross brought peace to those who are far off which is everyone in this room as Gentiles. But you also brought peace to the Jews who also needed grace and mercy. And now, Lord, we are one body. So when we read about Abraham, he's our father, Abraham. When we read about David, he's a king that we can look up to from the Old Testament because that's our story. And most of all, when we come to you, Jesus, in the pages of the New Testament, you're our brother. And Lord, you're the only one who could have looked at any race and said that race is less than. And yet you came right in and rescued it because of your grace and mercy. So Lord, teach us to confess our racism, our elitism, our snobbery, our maybe we think that because we're in the 21st century, we're smarter than other people from earlier times. Whatever it is, Lord, teach us to confess that to you as, as false hopes and teach us to run, rather, to the cross. In your name we pray, amen.